Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit, one week at a time. I brought Dr. Bajalan onto Chasing Leviathan to help me better understand the modern Kurdish political situation. But it became clear as we talked, and this is what I love about podcasts, that I first had to understand what nationalism is before I could understand the historical context for the modern Kurdish political situation. And so what we decided to do is to take what ended up being a much longer interview and turn it into two episodes, one focused on what is a very distinct discussion about what is nationalism and another on the modern Kurdish political situation, and specifically the historical context that led into the creation of the modern Kurdish political situation. So I hope you'll take the time to listen to both and enjoy them. Thank you. Dr. Bajalan, uh, wonderful to have you on the show. Uh, can you tell us a little bit how you got interested in this uh, this area of Kurdish history and uh, just uh, why it's so important for today? Well, obviously, um, I am of partial Kurdish background. My father is from Iraqi Kurdistan, and he moved to the United Kingdom in the 1970s. My mother is British. Uh, so I was born and brought up in the UK, and I've always been interested in history. And of course, yeah. uh, you know, people become interested in their identities and their, uh, you know, where they come from, you know as they're trying to find their place in the world. And one of the things I've, you know, found interesting was, you know, exploring Kurdish society and history and sort of my interest in history plus my, you know, uh, connection to the Kurdish community uh, kind of led me into the direction of studying Kurdish history and, mm. you know, looking at the development of Kurdish identity and politics over you know, uh, you know, over the last 100 and 150 years, because, of course, the Kurdish identity uh, and the Kurdish question more broadly um, has, it, it is a question that is a controversial question in a way mm -hmm. that, for example, people groups that have nation states is less so because, you know, we live in a world of nation states and people... Uh, often allied the concept of, you know, citizenship and nationality and ethnic background and all those kind of things together. And so because of the, you know, problematic uh, nature of the Kurdish identity within the broader Middle East, what it means to be Kurdish, what, you know, the political implications are of that, how people have interpreted that identity in different historical uh, periods and different political context, that's, you know, a very interesting uh, subject in and of itself, but more broader, you know, on a broader level, it is an interesting way to look at the question of national identity and uh, how that shapes our worldviews today and what, you know, what nationalism is as this ideology, which 
uh, on one level is seems very obvious to people, but when you drill down on it, it becomes extremely complicated and ever shifting, ever moving, and having you know different meanings to different people and different influences on you know political discourse. It's one of those social constructs that uh, people are so easily blind to because it just kind of forms the way things are and rather than being the things that are formed, if that makes sense. Exactly. I mean, in popular discourse, for example, we often, you know, think of nationalism, you know, especially in liberal countries in the West as A, something negative and B, something that, you know, good liberals don't do. Um, but, you know, a lot of nationalism and, and the way people's identities are formed are uh, is in a very banal way. There's a concept called banal nationalism where, you know, your national identity isn't necessarily formed by the hot moments of political conflict, but just day-to-day -day routine things like, you know, you go to a swimming class and you get a certificate from the British Swimming Association, or you get a certificate from the American Swimming Association. Or for example, you know, you live in Seattle, but you're more familiar with the politics of New York City than of Vancouver, which is much closer to you, uh, because of the way that your media habits are formed by living within the confines of a nation state with a particular media market and a particular conception of what is and what is not part of your community. Mm. So nationalism is not simply, you know, when people start murdering each other over national <laughs> identity. It is, you know, a very fundamental ideology to the modern capitalist world. It is, you know, the, the, the base ideology, you know, base political ideology of the political structures that shape our world, which are nation states. You know, there are very few states out there that don't define themselves in one way or another, either as a unified nation state or as a federation of nations. Uh, you know, so, you know, this, this ideology, which came into being, let's say, in the late 18th century, has come to fundamentally redraw the map of the world and help transform, you know, how states are legitimized and, and how they present themselves to the world. And of course, because, you know, as much as we perhaps think that nations are identified identifiable by certain objective criteria, um, the inherent cultural diversity of humanity in the pre-modern era means that, you know, nations are not self-evident. They have to be constructed. And that process of construction, I mean, we use the term nation building, but that process of construction is one that never really finishes because it's always mm -hmm being built and redefined in different eras. Think of the United States and how be, how Americanness was defi defined, you know, historically to, uh, you know, to be truly part of the American people. You had to, you know, be an uh, Anglo-Protestant or white. And then, of course, you know, over time, different groups have been, you know, the national identity has been opened up to certain groups that were not included as being part of the nation. And of course, that's always a process of contestation. Even mm. within the same sort of nationalism, you'll have different interpretations, which see, you know, there's a liberal multicultural uh, 
conception of nationalism in the United States. There's a white nationalist conception. There's a Christian nationalist uh, conception. And, you know, the, the, these, uh, you know, these conceptions of just what it is to be an American are always in a state of contestation. So nationalism is not just a conflict between different groups, different states, different people, but also a, a contestation within any particular nation as to who is and who is not in this, you know, people or demos that is so important to, you know, the legitimacy of the bourgeois democratic state. Yeah, I and I, I love the way that you've gone into depth on what nationalism is, because even um, unless you've sat down and really engaged with that concept, uh, nationalism seems like the way that you define it is as this concept that has uh, different moral implications, depending on how it's used. And some of them are good, some of them are bad, some of them are relatively neutral, right? I mean, they're just part of everyday living. Um, whereas in common discourse, uh, nationalism seems to be a word more defined by its connotations than by its actual definition, right? Like, uh, you, uh, literally, I, I, it works in my head that um, I could be talking to someone, they're like, oh, I'm not nationalist, but I'm patriotic, which of mm -hmm. course is... <laughs> Which when you really get down, you're like, wait a second. But, you know, some of that is the way that the the people who most pr uh, proudly push being nationalist, right? That becomes that becomes that kind of label rather than what does it mean to, like, be of a nation, right? Um, so th uh, that's – thank you. That's really helpful to kind of solidify that. Um, and I would, I would probably also add within academia, there are different ways of talking about nationalism – which, you know, because we use the same terminology can mean different things. So uh, although it's certainly to a certain degree arbitrary, uh, I, when writing on nationalism, I tend to talk about nationalism. Uh, and, and this is not the only way you can talk about it. There are other legitimate ways so long as you define what you're talking about. I tend to talk about nationalism as being the idea, this comes from the theoretician Ernest Gellner, that you, and I'm paraphrasing, but you, the, the, that the cultural and political unit should be coercion. And of course, uh, that can mean different things to different people because what is culture, right? You know, so in a broad sense, it's, it's the idea that we live in a world of nations and each nation has the right to self-determination, which the ultimate expression of is a nation state. And the reason I make that distinction is because I think it's helpful in the context of the work I do to discuss that uh, with regards to other forms of, let's say, nationality-based politics. So there could you can have a people who regard themselves as being a nation but do not necessarily see the idea of a nation state as being a solution to, mm. the, to the question. So I talk about nationalism as a kind of political uh, pathway that a group that sees itself as a nationality can take, but there are other ways. For example, the idea that you could live in a multinational federation. In, uh, and this seems somewhat contradictory, but you could be, you could be, you believe yourself to be part of a kind of organic nation but see yourself also as being loyal to a political nation. So mm -hmm. you could be in a country like India, 
where many different communities have all the apparent objective criteria of a nation. You know, they have a language or they have like a, you know, a common history, a common political history, they have a common identity. But that is, uh, you know, but that is some, there's a compromise between that conception of their nationality and then their membership of a broader um, national uh, political nation. And that may sound contradictory, but it speaks to the fact that nationalism is always, always has within it kind of contradictory aspects to it. And people are always struggling to, you know, work out how their, um, you know, how their identity uh, fits in. So you'll have some people who will, you know, who will be, have a notion of nationality that is very organic and based on culture and objective criteria. And then you'll be have, you'll have other people who will advocate, you know, what sometimes is called civic nationalism, which is a kind of rebranding of this old idea that there was good Western nationalism that was based on, you know, politics and, you know, bourgeois modernity and, and, and citizenship. And then this bad, like Eastern nationalism, which was based on race and ethnicity and things like that. Mm. And the distinction between those, uh, this like civic nationalism and what we might call an ethnic nationalism or a religious nationalism is to a certain degree, an artificial distinction. But there's always this contestation where, you know, you know, even in America, you'll have people who are like, I'm American, that's my identity, I'm American. But then you'll have people who will have a hyphenated identity with like an Italian American, which is, well, I'm Italian, which is a nationality within certain contexts, but I'm also an American. So they make some kind of com compromise because people often do have multiple identities and can lay claim to multiple identities, which could be within the right context, conceived of as a separate national identity. So there's always this kind of contestation uh, taking place. So, you know, the nationality is conceived of as a, uh, as a kind, uh, you know, there's always this tension between like the objective criteria of being a nation, like, well, you, you're, you're an Italian, you come from an Italian background, you speak Italian, but you're a citizen of the United States. So, you know, there's, you can, you you could, uh, you could say, well, I'm just a citizen of the United States. That's nothing to do with my like internal nationality. You could say, uh, I'm a, I'm a citizen of the United States. So the fact that I'm of Italian origin is irrelevant, or you could try and compromise in your mind between, you know, those two different identities, which both could be in the right context, national identity. And people do, uh, you know, within the process of their lives, if you look, for example, in the, in the 19th century, uh, constantly reconceive of identities in different ways, in different contexts, if that well, makes sense. Yeah. And I, to give a concrete example, um, uh, you know, cooking is a, is a hobby of mine. So I was watching a documentary on the difference between Italians and Italian Americans. And this is what this is part of that contradictory but more just like just the process of what happens right so when you when you say you're italian when you say you're american those are two distinct things when you say you're italian american what you don't get is a combination you actually get a third kind of culture mm -hmm. that is connected to in this case american right um so an example of this i watched a documentary on on the food and the way that when uh people immig uh, immigrated 
to America from Italy, they had more access to meat. So like, mm -hmm. there's nothing, like if you talk to an American, there's nothing more Italian than spaghetti and meatballs, but that's not an Italian dish. Right. In fact, any spaghetti and meatballs that exist in Italy have come back uh, because tourists were asking <laughs> when they went to Italy, right? And it's, uh, but if you talk to Italian Americans, like this is our dish, right? That was something that was created as being like, it was this marriage of the two that became its own thing. Um, and that's, you know, I mean, cooking and food is, uh, you know, something I think we can all relate to, but it happens with other things too. It happens with language. It happens with, with religion and culture. You see the, the, you, what you create is something distinct. Um, mm -hmm. so, uh, that, that I, what you're saying, I think I track with. And what from my definition, uh, of nationalism, which I get, again, I say is one particular one is that what is primary in understanding you know what nat what nation you you regard yourself as primarily being a part of is the political and right. that means that you know in a very concrete way with italian americans it's like when world war ii happened are you going to fight for italy or are you going to fight for the united states which which country which state which movement if it's a separatist movement do you have loyalty to mm. So we have this, uh, so like I said, you know, obviously we can talk about nationalism in different ways, but because my work focuses on that political aspect, um, I argue that, you know, when we're talking about what kind, what nationalism someone is acting politically towards is, you know, what are they prizing as their primary a political identity operating in the world. So, you know, again, we can talk about nationality and culture and cultural hybrid hybrids and, you know, like, and also the creation of distinct, you know, constituency groups like Italian Americans that have a certain kind of identity. But, you know, when the push comes to shove, you know, which identity are you going to prioritize as being the primary political identity, even if you do try and maintain some kind of compromise between that and another identity, if that makes yeah. sense. So again, that's just one way of looking at it, but I think that's a useful way in that we can distinguish, let's say, um, uh, we can distinguish between uh, nationalism and other forms of nationality-based politics. Yes. A good example in America, is the Black American identity. When we talk about Black Americans or African Americans, um, we're talking a, a, about a, a specific group that could, in some ways, be uh, you know interpreted as one's national identity. And that was the goal of uh, Black separatism. Black separatism were, you know, argued that there is a Black nation, there is a Black people, and that Black people should have a right to national self-determination in the form of a state, right? But obviously there was an alternative to that, which was the idea that Black Americans are a distinct community. Mm. Uh, even they could be conceived of as a distinct nation, but they should be seen as part, they, the, the political strategy should be for integration into a, you know, a kind of cosmopolitan American nationalism that has space for both the black identity and 
you know, uh, an American identity. So the black identity, you know, nationalism becomes a strategy of like, you realize you're a group. Okay, so what is the implication of being part of that group? Is it that you are going to become a nation with a state and push for that? Or are you going to become part of, uh, uh, are you going to totally assimilate? And then there's all these places within, you know, you could you could say, well, let's have a federation. Let's hmm. have a, let's have a, uh, integration, but our own civil, separate civil society. Or, you know, completely say like, no, we should, we should like not privilege this black identity and only operate as Americans, as individuals, Americans, and part of the American demos. Yeah, and this is uh, fascinating because when I talked to uh, Dr. Pamela Crosley about uh, Chinese history, um, she made a very similar point. And mm -hmm. I, I'm to make sure I'm tracking with you, but I think this is also I think this is a good example of what you're talking about. Her work uh, was primarily, um, and I'm going to get the names wrong. They uh, the emperor took one ethnic group and made them administrators around his uh, around his entire country. And he forced them to write in the language, um, and they had to write grammatically correct according to a set standard that they created across the whole thing. Because, of course, when you send people out, they create dialects. And so in order to receive the emperor's mm -hmm. help for anything, you had to send in a letter for uh, to request. And if there were any grammatical mistakes, the emperor himself would take red ink mark it wrong and send it back, which could take like months. And so everyone had to learn this perfect form of, I believe it was Mandarin uh, at the time. And so what ended up happening was over time, it created cohesion of identity. And I think that's like your point of like the political ends up becoming uh, more important because when push comes to shove, I you know, as you mentioned earlier, like in times of war, in times of stress, it we tend to default to these political units. Uh, a good example, you mentioned India having several identities within it. Italy used to be the same way and has become more and more cohesive over time as each time it's been called to be Italy itself, people have assumed that identity more. Because it's easier to point to a standardized codified identity than it is in times of stress to rely on something more local and organic. Is that tracking yeah, with you? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, 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 you have, to, I mean, the way I would put it is like, you have to split it into two periods. Hmm. So there is the period of nationalism, and that is a period of the last 200 years. And that obviously tracks with the, you know, uh, the, the rise of capitalism uh, the rise of the bureaucratic state and the requirements that that meet needs. So in the pre-modern era, obviously imperial states, for example, imposed cultures. China is a good example. Uh, but uh, the Ottoman Empire, again, you could talk about like an Ottoman identity yeah. as well. Uh, you can talk about a Polish identity, but very important because these were feudal societies, there was often a class dimension to this. So for example, in Poland, the ruling class and the peasantry, although they spoke similar dialects, there was a, there was a desire to emphasize the difference between them. So the ruling class in Poland claimed this, uh, the Sumatian origin, which is like, you know, there are different people from the, the peasants who are like, you know, below them, even though they have like a, you know, uh, their, their dialects were not really different uh, from uh, one another. Mm. Um, 
So the imperial, uh, what you'll have, uh, you know, coming into the modern period is, you know, various local dynamic uh, identities, various imperial identities, sectarian and religious identities, right? And in the pre-modern state, there, there's like there isn't a need, and in fact, it's you know there's a reason not to, for example, to impose a cultural unity on people. Uh, because, you know, these are hierarchical societies where you have almost a caste-like system. Hmm. But in the modern capitalist world, we move away from these kind of formations to the idea of of a people. And the question comes down to, and the people become key, key in legitimizing a state. Even in conservative, uh, you know, monarchies and imperial states, there's a recognition like, that there is a need to build a popular support and a popular identity to rally around. So what we see is, you know, some of these identities get picked up in the modern era as being the, you know, material from which a new national identity is created. So if we take, for example, the idea, the Kurdish identity or the Ottoman identity or the Arab identity, these t- words are the same words as we use today. But the, uh, in the era of nationalism, they have radically different implications. So, for example, uh, in Kurdish society, uh, if you spoke to, uh, if you spoke to, let's say, uh, Kurdish tribal leaders, they would say, well, the Kurds are only the tribally organized people, the, mm. the the Muslim peasantry that isn't part of a tribe and which they rule over, and that is Muslim, that speaks the same dialect, they would say, no, they're not proper because they're a different uh, race of people and we're above them, we're superior, right? Uh, again, the Ottoman identity uh, would be, you know, a ruling class identity used to distinguish a group from the lower down and hoi polloi masses of people. In China, the Han Chinese identity, I would assume, was a kind of caste ruling class imperial identity uh, that was above, you know, the various different people groups and and communities that were below them. But of course, what happens when you have to create a people? Well, you have, you know, nation building projects operating in different ways. And, And so you have often uh, states trying to impose, you know, what had been an imperial identity uh, and almost a class-based identity as a kind of new national identity. And sometimes in reaction to that, some of the more localized identities would develop uh, either a kind of hybridity with that imperial identity or would like, you know, respond to it. Because when, think about the modern state. The modern state brings up a whole host of questions that had not previously been important. Like, for example, when you build a school, what language is that school going to be? As the state tries to administer people more, uh, you know, what language are those administrators going to speak? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, uh, so so there's all these kind of questions that come up. So, uh, like, if we look at public education in America... The function of public education, initial, although today we, we always think of public ed- education as being preparing people for jobs, the function of pu- public education in the 19th century was to build a unified national identity where people would have 
like a loyalty to a state, to a culture, uh, you know, uh, like you gave the example of Italy, you know, there are obviously historical pre precedents to an Italian identity, but that identity had to be physically constructed by the Italian state. Uh, uh, and there could have been alternative projects. Let's say Italy, let's say Piedmont Sardinia had only united the north of Italy. Mm. We could have had an Italian identity that is the north of Italy, and then yes. we could have had a Sicilian identity that was its own national identity rather than being reduced to a regional kind of identity. If we look at the permutations of Scotland, you know, uh, when the Act of Union happened, uh, you know, the, the Scots, many Scots were at the vanguard of creating a British identity, you know, even going so far as to call Scotland North Britain. But, you know, as Britain has declined, that Scottish identity from being a kind of sub-identity or a constituent identity of a British kind of political, broader British political identity has emerged with a very strong kind of nationalist connotation. If that, so that's what I mean, like it's always like permutate, per, you know, it's always shifting depending on the prevailing political conditions. Yes, absolutely. And I want to make sure we do talk about Kurdish history a little bit, but uh, this is just fascinating to me. Um, the one language is never neutral, right? I mean, uh, you mentioned Scotland, but uh, you were talking about there's the hybridizing response and then there's a, a response of resistance. And that's what we've seen in Ireland, right? And one of the biggest issues is what is taught in schools. Like uh, it is an act of patriotism. It's a nationalist. I don't know if that necessarily fits the definition that you, you generally work with, but for Irish people to speak Irish, right? To, to speak that language. Yeah, well, so another way you can perhaps think about national, nationalism, uh, an alternative way, which kind of overlaps with the way I talk about it, is, is the way that uh, John Hutchinson has talked about it, talked about cultural nationalism and mm. political nationalism. Mm. And so political nationalism focuses on this nation state and the desire to build a state, whereas the cultural nationalists uh, focus more uh, on a kind of organic approach where you can nation build without, you know, outside of uh, outside of the state. And Ireland is actually a good example because uh, although language symbolically is important, the primary element of identity that for, around which Irish nationalism formed was not language but religion. Right, was, right. Was, was Catholicism. And the hostility of the British state towards Catholicism, uh, along with the kind of colonial relationships that Britain had with um, uh, Ireland, um, you know, created this context where if you look at the, uh, you know, early Irish uh, movement, you know, many of them sought like equality within Britain, but moved towards like a separatist type, uh, type of uh, uh, politics. The historian Eric Hobsbawm makes like a very good statement, which is, you know, it's not nations that build, it, it, it's not uh, nations that build states and nationalism, it's nationalisms and states that build nations. That and makes he, sense. And he perhaps forgot to add, and sometimes with the policies they pursue, they end up building the wrong nation. They end up, <laughs> they end up. Uh, unifying groups that were previously quite di dispersed uh, 
into a kind of alternative uh, national identity that seeks its own independent uh, statehood. Hmm. Uh, and I think that, you know, and forgive me for taking so long on this, but I think this is just super helpful and it's been really, it's helped clarify a lot of things for me. 